This is an Our Savior Evangelical Free Church podcast. To learn more, visit osefc.org. Well, at this time, we will be turning to God's Word. So if you have a Bible, uh, please open it to John chapter 17. We've been in John 17 for the month of April. Since Palm Sunday, we've been looking at the high priestly prayers. We'll be in John 17 this morning. If you don't have a Bible on the streaming page, there's actually a tab uh, that's with a chat window that has a Bible. You can just pull it up right there and have the passage up right next to the video screen. If that helps you be able to bounce your eyes back and forth from the Bible to this video. It's important, I think, for all of us to be able to see these words for ourselves. Anytime we get up here and preach from the pulpit, we are not trying to preach our own wisdom. We're not trying to preach our own words. We are simply trying to faithfully preach God's word. And so we love when everyone can look at God's word with us and see why we're saying these things. So we'll be in John 17 this morning. Before I read this passage for us, would you just join me in a word of prayer? Father, I thank you that you have spoken, that you have inspired men and women through your spirit to write your words down, and that for thousands of years you have faithfully preserved your words, that we can now open a book and read what you have to say. Thank you that in your unthinkable power and providence over creation, you can compose a book thousands of years ago that still speaks to us through your spirit today. I ask this morning as we look to your word, your voice would be the only one that we hear. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Like I said, we will be in John 17, starting in verse 20. So if you have your Bible, I will read our passage for us. John 17, 20. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you have sent me and loved them, even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known, that the love with which you have loved me may be in them, and I in them. We're coming now to the end of Jesus' high priestly prayer, as it's often called. And before we look at the end of this prayer, I just want us to, to remember the context of what's happening. As Jesus is praying this, this has been going on since the beginning of chapter 17, just one prayer. As Jesus is praying this, he's sitting with his disciples, re reclining at a table in an upper room, and this is actually the last dinner he'll have with his disciples before he is arrested, put on trial, and then crucified. 
We oftentimes call this particular meal the Last Supper because this is Jesus' last meal before the crucifixion that he has with his disciples, whom he has been with as he's ministered for the past three years. John devotes a good chunk of his book to this meal. If you look, it's not just chapter 17, but in fact, several of the chapters preceding this also all take place at this Last Supper. As John remembers and recounts every detail of that meal to his readers. John was one of the 12 disciples that gathered for this supper. And so what we have is a firsthand account of what took place. And so in this prayer, Jesus is sitting with his disciples, sharing a meal together. And it's not just any meal. They are, in fact, celebrating the Passover which for Israel is a time to celebrate and remember all that God did to deliver the nation and the people of Israel from Egypt and from Pharaoh, deliver them out of slavery and eventually on to the promised land. And so this meal was a celebration to remind themselves that as a people they once were caught in slavery, that as a people they were once helpless under Pharaoh's power, but that God delivered them mightily. And that in so doing, his spirit passed over the sins and people of Israel and allowed them to exit Egypt. So he's sharing this meal with his disciples. And it's one of the highest, holiest celebrations for the people of Israel as they remember this time in their history. And he knows that his time with his disciples is no longer measured in months or weeks or even days, but just in hours. Because in just a few hours after he goes out to pray, he's going to be arrested. And that once he's arrested, he's going to be taken away from his disciples. And that eventually he'll be delivered up to a cross to be crucified and he will die And his disciples will be left alone, scattered, and wondering what to do next. Jesus knows that that's about to happen as they all are around the table together. But his disciples are not yet aware. So during this meal, he pauses and he prays. Knowing what will come for these men, knowing what will come for himself, he prays. And as he ends his prayer, he turns his attention not just to his disciples, but interestingly enough, if you see in verse 20, he he begins to pray for all those who will believe in him because of his disciples. And his attention moves on from just praying for those who are in the room, but he begins to intercede on behalf of those who will hear the words of the disciples. And as we read verses 20 through 26, it can sometimes actually be hard to kind of track with what Jesus is saying because there's a lot of different relationships happening in verses 20 through 26 because we have Jesus, the Son, who's praying to the Father, 
but he's praying for the disciples. But now he's also praying for those who will hear from the disciples. But then he's also praying for the world who will see the disciples. And he's praying for the disciples as they will see the Father. And he's praying for the Father as he will love the disciples. And so there's a lot of different relationships and things happening in verses 20 through 26 as Jesus prays. And as I sat down to read through this prayer this week, I was struck by not just the words that Jesus was praying, not just the requests he was making of the Father, but I was struck by the story that he was telling. We don't probably often think of telling a story in, pr- in a prayer But in some measure, that's what Jesus is doing. He's telling a story while praying because not only is he praying to the Father, he knows that his disciples are listening. And so in some measure, this story is for their benefit so they can understand what it is that Christ is praying for. So I want us to look at that story this morning. I want to tell you that story. It's one that you might be familiar with, but... I want you to hear it again if you've heard it before. And if you've never heard this story, I'm excited to share it with you because it's the best story you'll ever hear in your life. I think the reason it can be confusing to see the story in verses 20 through 26 is that Jesus doesn't quite tell it in order. Like most stories, it does have a beginning, a middle, and an end. And Jesus tells us about the beginning, the middle, and the end. But he doesn't do so in order. So what I want to do for us this morning is see the story that Jesus is telling. The picture that he's giving his disciples. So we can understand this prayer. We can apply that story in our own lives. Again, like most stories, this has a beginning, a middle, and an end. But our story here in these verses actually takes place before the beginning. What I mean by that is, if you're familiar with the Bible, and particularly Genesis 1, you know that it starts with the big phrase, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Genesis 1 starts us by telling us the story of history, the story of the world and the universe itself. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. But the story that Jesus is telling starts before that point. So what we see here is that before the beginning, there was God. Before the world was created, there was one God. But this one God eternally existed in three distinct persons. You might have heard the word Trinity used to describe this concept, the idea that there's one God, one divine being, and yet still somehow three unique and distinct persons within that one Godhead. But as Jesus' story begins, we see that before the beginning, before the heavens and the earth, there was God. There was God the Father, God the Son, And God the Spirit. Because God is triune in nature, because there are three persons within the Godhead, before the beginning of the world, God was a God of love. 
God was a God of fellowship and community. Because God the Father loved God the Son. God the Son loved God the Spirit. God the Spirit loved God the Father. And so from before the foundation of the world, in verse 24, Jesus says, before the foundation of the world, you, the Father, have loved me, the Son. The story that he's telling begins before there was even ground to walk on, before there was a sky to have clouds in it, before a single animal had ever been born or made that was God. And God was a God of love because the Father loved the Son perfectly and eternally. And what we see of that God is that as the Father was loving the Son, even before the world existed, he was also giving glory to the Son. That as God's love proceeded from one person of the Trinity to the next, God's glory also was given from one person of the Trinity to the next. And that this triune God, since before time existed, has eternally had love and fellowship within himself. And if we want to make sense of the rest of our story, we have to understand that's the God we worship. Before the beginning, there was God. He was a God of love. Jesus goes on in his story. He says, Father, verse 24, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me. That as the Father loves the Son, he, he gives the Son glory. It's important for us to understand what glory means if we're going to understand this end of the prayer because Jesus talks about glory all over the place in these verses. D.A. Carson, a theologian, helpfully refers to glory and says that, that glory commonly refers to the manifestation of God's character or person in a revelatory context. That can kind of sound academic, but I think it's helpful for us. The glory refers to the manifestation of God's character or person. And so when we begin to think about what it means for God to reveal his glory or for God to give his glory or, or for this father to give the son glory, it's tied up in this idea of God's character or person being revealed, being made known. And so as God eternally exists, and as each person in the triune Godhead is loving the other persons, God's character as a loving God is being revealed. God's glory is being made known. And so from eternity past, the Son Father and the Spirit have enjoyed this loving community of fellowship within the Godhead. And what happens next is something that we don't fully have a satisfactory answer for. That's this, that this loving God then created a world. 
Now, God had absolutely no need to make a world. There wasn't anything missing or deficient in God that led him to create the world. God was completely sufficient within himself. God was able to love because of the Trinity without any world or anyone else to love. There was nothing that necessitated a world to exist, and yet God still spoke out and created a world. And we know that he created a world so that his love and his glory could flow into that world. And that creation, when we behold that glory, might praise him. And so this loving God, who has eternally and perfectly existed in fellowship and love, creates a world so that that world might experience his love as well. That's where Genesis 1 picks up the story. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. But in the midst of all of that creation, of everything in the universe, this God fashions humans. Humans who are a part of creation and yet unique from the rest of it because they alone are made in God's image. Of all the things created in our world, only one bears his image. Only one is made in the likeness of God, and that is man and woman. So this God, who's a God of love, creates a world so that his love might be displayed and poured out onto the world And he creates man in his image to be the recipient of that love so that man might see his glory and praise him. Like I said, this is probably a familiar story, but this is the story that Jesus is telling here. Saying the Father has given me a glory from the love that he has had for me since before the world was made. then what happens is that those humans who are made in God's image to see his glory and to rejoice in who God is instead turn away. And Adam and Eve, our first parents, instead of choosing to rejoice in God's glory, try to create some glory for themselves. Paul says it in Romans 1 this way. He says that that when we sin, we're just trying to suppress the truth of who God is. We're just trying to push down the knowledge of who this loving God truly is. And so God created a perfect world, a world to display his glory, a world to reveal his character, and a world that could be a recipient of his love. And in return, this creation says, no thanks. I'm going to try to find something else to praise. I'm going to try to find something else to look at glory. So Jesus prays here in verse 25. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you. Even though the world does not know you. Ever since Genesis 3, this has been the default position of every human being who has been born. They don't know God. They don't see his glory anymore. Paul, again in Romans 1, says that that none of us are, are left with any sort of an excuse because God's world still bears witness to that he is a powerful creator who is righteous and holy. 
but we actively, in our sin, seek to suppress that truth. We try to close our eyes and plug our ears to God's glory. We try to ignore God's love and look anywhere else. And it's not just that we've chosen our own way to live, but we've looked at God and said, your way to live is not good enough. Adam and Eve didn't just choose to eat a particular fruit. They also chose to tell God, we know better than you. Even though you told us not to eat of a particular tree, we second-guessed your advice and decided that we had some better knowledge about which tree to eat from, and so we ate from that tree. Jesus reminds his disciples, the world doesn't know this Father anymore. The world doesn't know this God who has loved and created and poured out his glory. And that's a problem. Because as he prays in verse 25, this God is in fact righteous. And a righteous, holy God who is pure will not stand for his creation to be tarnished. God could have rightfully looked at Adam and Eve, the first humans to sin, and poured out his wrath and punishment immediately. And it would have been righteous to do so. But he doesn't. This created world didn't end at the Garden of Eden after Adam and Eve ate from a tree. Instead, God came up with a plan. It was a plan that he had since even before the foundation of the world, but he began to reveal that plan to his image bearers. And it's a plan, unsurprisingly, rooted in love. You see, instead of just pouring out wrath and judgment on Adam and Eve immediately, this loving God decided to stay his hand for a time until he could send a savior. And that savior would certainly take the wrath and the punishment. That savior would certainly bear the weight of the sin and rebellion that had been committed against God throughout history. But in so doing, that savior would let the guilty parties be declared innocent. And this is a plan rooted in love. Again, in Romans, the apostle Paul says that God demonstrates his love in that while we were still sinners, in that while we were still suppressing the truth of who God is, in that while we were still active in our rebellion against him, in that while we were still dead spiritually, at that time, God demonstrated his love by sending his son to die. God demonstrates his love in that while we are still sinners, Christ died for us. That's the plan that the Father has set forth in history. Because he has this eternal existing love within himself that he has now spilled out into his creation. And because of that love, he does not want to see his creation just simply perish under his wrath and judgment. Instead, he wants to see it redeemed and made like new, like he first made it in the garden. So the world does not know God. It's active in its rebellion, but Christ has come 
Christ came so that a world who suppressed the truth of God might know him, might glorify him and be in fellowship with him again. As Jesus prays, he says this in verse 22, the glory that you have given me. And remember where this glory is from. This is why we're, we're telling the story in order because he tells us about where the glory comes from in verse 24, but he also references it here in verse 22. So remember where this glory comes from. The glory that you have given me, the glory that Jesus received from the Father from eternity past because the Father has loved him from eternity past, that glory that you have given me, I now have given to the disciples that they may be one even as we are one. So this loving God looks to a fallen, sinful world and sends his own son to be that savior. And he says, I've given my son love and glory from eternity past. Since before creation existed, I have loved my son. So I'm going to send him into this world to make things right and to deliver this glory that he has been receiving from eternity. He's doing all this so that he can begin to make this people for his own possession. Now, the people of Israel have already been called a nation for God. But we understand that God's people are not just about a certain ethnicity or people who are all descended from common physical, biological father, but that God's people are a people of spiritual birth. And so Christ, as he's praying here in verse 22, says, you've given me glory. And we see from verse 24 that that glory came from eternity past as the father and son were loving one another. So, so he says, you've given me glory and I now give that glory to my disciples so that they might be one. So that instead of just separate sinners, they might all be one family of a redeemed people. And so God is making a new people. So let's just pause to remember the context. We're sitting at a dinner. Jesus and 11 of his disciples. And he's praying for them saying, Father, I've given them my glory, which I got from you from eternity past, so that with my glory, which is your glory, they might be united together in me. And that by being united together, they might be the beginning of a new people. So this loving God sends God the Son to deliver glory and make a new people. And that new people will start in this room then Jesus prays that this people will grow. And notice in verse 20, he says, I do not ask for these only, these 11 men sitting next to me, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. Jesus in his prayer, and as he's telling this story of redemption, is saying that it's not going to just be 11 people sitting in the room that get saved. That those 11 people are going to go out from here they're going to tell other people about me. And that when they do that, those who hear will believe. And that those who believe will be made one 
in my glory. As each person is brought into God's love, we're unified under Christ. We're unified in a unique way to show that Jesus is from the Father. So as Christians, when we think about being brothers and sisters in Christ, what that means is that we're, we're united because of the love that Christ has poured out on us. We're united around the glory of the Father that has been given to us through the Son. So if you come to church, you'll find people of all different ages, from all different backgrounds, with all different life experiences, from all different places around the world that speak different languages. You'll find people with different personalities. You'll find people that would otherwise not connect with or speak to one another in any context, and yet we are brought together, united as one people, simply because all of us share the unique experience of being made alive through Christ. And so what happens is that all the divisions that exist to our worldly eyes between people are torn down because we all have the singularly unique claim to say, I am God's child, that I've been made one in Christ. So in the beginning of our story, we had a loving God. God who was loving before even creation existed. And out of an overflow and abundance of his love and his glory, he creates a world that turns away from him in rebellion. And instead of destroying that world, motivated by this eternal love, he sends his son so that the Son might once again bring God's glory to God's creation. And we as his image bearers are the recipients of that love so that we might be witnesses of that glory. We might give God praise as we were always intended to do. But then we arrive at the middle of the story. That's the beginning. There was a God created the world, needed to send a Savior. But now the Savior has arrived. Jesus is in the room. And in just a few hours here, he will go to the cross to, to bring about that salvation plan. We'll be squarely in the middle of this story that he's telling. And now, 2,000-ish years later, we're still in the middle of this story because God the Son has come to reveal the Father's glory, to make the love of the Father known, and we are recipients of it, brought together under Christ. And as we get to the middle of the story... Jesus gives us one of the most astounding verses in this chapter. In verse 23, he says, in, in 22 it just said, make them one even as you and I are one. And in 23 he says, I in them, that is the Son in my disciples and you, the Father, in me, the Son. I in them and you in me that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. So that the world may know you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. 
Like I said, this is one of the most astounding verses in the chapter, perhaps the book of John. Because God the Son reveals the extent of the Father's love. So from eternity past, the Father has been loving the Son. And that that love has been poured out into the world. And now Jesus says, you've sent me. Remember, that was motivated by God's love. God's love certainly motivated Christ's arrival on earth so that he might redeem a people. But then Jesus goes on to say, so that the world that is witnessing this might know that you, God the Father, love the disciples in the same manner that you love me. You might have heard this a thousand times, but I don't want that news to ever grow old for you. For those who are in Christ, the same love that the Father has for the Son, the love that he has eternally given to the Son since before the world was created, the love that is perfect, the love that gives the Father's glory to the Son, that same love the Father has now turned and also given to his children. The Father has given that love to you who are in Christ. It's not a different sort of love. It's not a lesser love. The same love that is shared in the triune Godhead between the persons of God is now shared with the disciples and all those who would believe. God the Father loves you who are in Christ in the same exact manner that he loves Christ himself. Jesus prays and says, I pray that all who would hear might be perfectly one because you have sent me here to show and spread your love to your children. So that's the middle of the story. We exist and live in a world that is still broken by sin. We still are surrounded by a world that does not know God, as Jesus prays in verse 24, a world that suppresses the truth of who God is and, and tries to hide it down and ignore it. But that God, motivated by love, has sent a Savior so that he could then give that love to any who would believe. And as we sit here, the Son continues to make known the love of the Father to his disciples. God's revelation of his glory to us is not a one-time event, but is continual. In verse 26, Jesus says, I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. Like I said, he's telling a story. Even as he's praying, he's telling a story. Saying, Father, we, we existed eternally before the foundation of the world in love and fellowship. That, that there's a world that doesn't know that glory and that love anymore because it's turned away. And so you sent me so that the world might know once more. And that for all who know your glory, for all who know your name, Father, 
they might experience that eternally existing love. Christ ensures that we know the Father, but even each day of our lives, we continue to know the Father and know the Father's love. All good stories have a beginning, a middle, and an end. As we sit in the middle of the story, we receive God's love. We continually know God's love through Christ. But what's the end of the story? Verse 24, Jesus says, Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. God's plan was not just to send Christ so that our guilt could be taken away, so that the judgment that should have fallen on us went to Christ and then we could go on knowing God's love and rejoicing in that, as if that were even some small thing. God's plan is even larger than that. That it's not just about taking away the guilt of his people, not just about restoring a world that was once perfect back to perfection, but ultimately God's plan is that his creation and specifically his image bearers would be connected in communion and fellowship with him once again. And so Jesus prays and says, Father, my desire, which we know that the Father and the Son share the same desire, he says, Father, my desire is that I could be with my disciples, that I could be with those you have given me. Brothers and sisters, we enjoy the fruit of that desire through the Holy Spirit, who is with us now for any who are in Christ. But as this story will work towards its end, there will be a time when we are with Christ, when we're with the Father, the Son, face to face, and behold his glory. Whatever glory we've seen of God now is almost as if through a veil or in a mirror, says Paul. But then, at the end of the story, when we are with God face to face, we will behold his glory and see him in all his brilliance. We will be able to respond to his love in worship and praise on ending as we were meant to. Christ says, my desire is to be with my people. And when we reach the end of the story, that will be true forever and ever. Our story began with a God who was eternally existing in love, the love for the, the, the Son from the Father. And the story will end with a God who is eternally existing in love, but now instead it will be a love of the Father for the Son, but also a love of the Father and the Son and the Spirit for his people. So God's desire is to bring a people out to save them, but then that those people would be with him forever as eternal recipients of love that has existed eternally in the Godhead so that his glory might be made known more and more and more into eternity. That's the story that Jesus tells in 20 through 26. A love that was from before the foundation of the world, a love that motivated a rescue plan, 
and a love that desires to be with his people forever. So here in the middle of the story, how do we make sense of what to do? What, what does it mean for us to be in the middle of this plan right now? My first question would be, do you know the Father? Jesus says that, that he has come to make the Father known to a world that does not know the Father. So do you know the love that God has for his creation? Do you know that God is righteous and holy? Or are you like Adam and Eve who first sinned, attempting to suppress the truth of who God is and living in rebellion against him? Jesus Christ has come that you might know the Father and that you can stand innocent before him to see his glory and rejoice in his beauty. For those who are in Christ, what do we do with this story? What do we do with the end of this prayer? Three questions. First, are you striving for unity with your brothers and sisters? Are you striving for unity with your brothers and sisters? Christ's hope in this prayer is that we might not only just be one, but as he says in verse 23, perfectly one. That is to say that, that we might be so affected and changed by God's love that we are unified together with brothers and sisters who have also been made alive to God. So are you striving for unity with your brothers and sisters? Or are you allowing divisions and differences to come up and interrupt the fellowship that you should be able to share? Practically speaking, are you harboring grudges, bitterness, resentment towards brothers and sisters who are in Christ? Or do you understand that you were once suppressing the truth of God and dead in your trespasses. God's love made you alive. That he has done the same thing for all those who are in Christ. And so now we can be united perfectly to the same love. Secondly, do you regularly behold the glory of the Father? Christ has come that we might be one, might be perfectly one, but also that we might see the glory that the Father has given the Son from eternity past. God has spoken through prophets, through his word, most perfectly through his Son, Jesus Christ, on earth, and all of those things are now kept in our scripture. Do you regularly look to that and behold God's glory? Remember, glory is just simply the revealing of God's character. Do you regularly look and, and see God's power? Do you regularly look and rejoice in God's love? Do you see God's righteousness? Do you praise him for who he is? Or have you allowed the distractions of this world to take your gaze off of the glory of the Father and start to ignore it, and maybe even just try to suppress it again? And, and lastly, specifically to this time, how are you expressing the unity that you have in Christ during this current circumstance. God's plan is to make a people for himself, a nation joined together in Jesus Christ. And part of that nation is that we are meant to be an encouragement to one another in times of trial. We are meant to continually 
point one another to the glory of the Father. We're meant to continually remind one another of all that God has done to pour out his love and his grace in our lives. God has made us for this sort of community and fellowship with one another. How are you expressing that unity during this time? In a time when when it's harder than ever to be with a person face-to-face, to see them regularly. Some of the old patterns we might have relied on might not be as effective right now. We can't take a friend out to coffee. We can't meet together in the same room and study God's word. So how can you express the unity found in Christ? How can you rejoice and have fellowship with his people? So I'd encourage you to think about that. How can you do that? Maybe it's sending a text, making a phone call, writing a letter, finding ways to continually point your brothers and sisters to the glory and love of the Father. Brothers and sisters, we worship a God who has been a God of love from before the foundation of the world. And he now almost inexplicably pours out that love to his children that we might share together as a family. We might see his glory and praise him. Let's pray. Father, we confess that we aren't able to fully comprehend even how you are one God in three persons. It's hard to wrap our minds around how you have loved since before the foundation of the world, since before time began. But we come to you today and praise you for pouring that love out on us through the person of Jesus Christ. We ask that you would build unity among us, that as we demonstrate a unity of your family, a world that is watching might understand who Jesus Christ is. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Our Savior Evangelical Free Church is a congregation located in Wheeling, Illinois. Our vision can be summed up in four words. Building community, bringing Christ. To learn more about what these words mean, visit our website at osefc.org.